Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Hello, I'm Andrew McDermott. How does an intelligent design theorist work effectively in a naturalistic culture? Today I'm speaking with Paul Nelson, a senior fellow of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture and adjunct faculty in the Master of Arts program in Science and Religion at Biola University. Nelson is a philosopher of biology who has been involved in the intelligent design debate internationally for three decades. Paul, great to have you back with us today. I always enjoy talking with you. Well, how are you faring with the recent lockdown and the coronavirus pandemic? Are you staying healthy and safe? I am. I I frankly miss the travel. I I love getting out and talking to people about intelligent design, uh, listening to their questions. So I look forward to this little nasty RNA virus calming down and going away. Uh, But I'm doing fine. Good, good. Well, I hope we can uh, see an end to it pretty soon. It is pretty crazy, but we have hope that things will shape up soon enough. Yes. Well, recently you published a biographical remembrance of one of your academic mentors, the philosopher of science Adolf Grunbaum, who was a professor at the University of Pittsburgh for most of his career. Can you describe Grunbaum for our listeners? Yes, he was an unforgettable person. Short, I think he stood about 5'7", balding, bespectacled, but tremendously vigorous and learned. Grunbaum was a refugee from Nazi Germany. He escaped in 1938, just before Kristallnacht, when you know, the persecution against the Jews really broke out throughout Germany at 15 years of age. Not really knowing any English, he came to New York City with his family, attended high school in the Bronx, and actually learned English, he told me, in large measure by going to see gangster movies. So his, his command of English was always tinged with a certain amount of Hollywood street slang, <laughs> uh, which made, made him very fun to listen to. During the Second World War, he was in the U.S. Army acting as a German translator, so he was involved in interrogating Nazi officers after the war, which taught him some interesting things, and then came back and studied the philosophy of science at Yale, where he earned his Ph.D., and then he joined the faculty at Lehigh University, was there for a brief period, and then recruited by University of Pittsburgh where he helped to build their philosophy program, in particular their philosophy of science program, into the world's best. That's where I met him in 1980. As an ex-art student, I had dropped out of art school, disenchanted with what I thought I was going to do, which was become a painter. And I had read Thomas Kuhn and fallen in love with the philosophy of science and met him sort of as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, entirely ignorant, young man, and he took me under his wing, for which I'll be forever grateful, because he treated me with great kindness and really was a wonderful teacher and mentor, even though, as I explain in the article I wrote about Grunbaum, he and I disagreed very deeply about things like God's existence. But I think now that when I approach the philosophy of science, and questions about explanatory power, the role of assumptions, all kinds of philosophical questions that are relevant to understanding science, I can hear his voice in my head. He was a specialist in the philosophy of space and time, 
early in his career. And then about the time that I met him, he began to take a much stronger interest in understanding psychoanalysis and Freud. He had a, a brother, actually, who was a, a Freudian psychoanalyst. I don't know how that figured in his own interests, but in the latter part of his career, he became best known for his critiques of Freudian theory. But he was, he was really a vigorous person. He'd come into class, the honors college course I took with him on science and religion, ready to argue, and he taught me about the value of argument. Well, in the evolutionnews.org article that you wrote, you use a phrase I really like, opposition is true friendship, from the English poet William Blake. If only some of our woke young people today could uh, appreciate that sentiment. <laughs> so was Blake just crazy there? Or what, what does he mean by this enigmatic phrase, opposition is true friendship? Well, you know, maybe, maybe Blake was a little bit crazy. He and his wife would greet visitors to their home basically with nothing on, right? They'd come to the door stark naked. And I think Blake probably was a little crazy, but crazy in the sense that his insights, you know, have, have helped me now hundreds of years after he lived. What he means, I think, can be understood in a number of ways. So let me, let me suggest a couple of them. The Holocaust survivor and Jewish intellectual Eli Weissel once wrote, and I think this is original with uh, excuse me, Eli Wiesel. I think this is original with Wiesel. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And if you think about that, when you are indifferent to something, you, you really take no interest in it at all, right? You just don't care one way or another. So I've been watching with my family during the, the COVID-19 lockdown, this really superb sports documentary, The Last Dance, about the Chicago Bulls. And it's crystal clear from the 10 parts of that documentary that in sports, opponents, two teams in a championship, let's say, they care passionately about the same thing. They're not indifferent at all. They care about the game. They care about the championship. They care about winning. So saying opposition is true friendship is, and you can still document everyone talk about each other, there is something that brings people on opposite sides of the question together in a way that does closely resemble friendship because they care passionately about the same thing. And in my interactions with Grinbaum, we cared passionately. He as teacher, me as, or I as student, about many of the same questions, such as does science give us insight into ultimate reality? Does God exist? If God does exist, could there be any scientific evidence for his existence? What is, the, what is the role of a concept like intelligent design and scientific explanation after Darwin and so forth? So he would come into class with his set of opinions about these questions, and I would come in as an eager student with my rather ill-formed opinions, and because we cared passionately about the same thing, a friendship developed. So that's what that phrase means. And I think the listeners, if they think about those things that they care passionately about and consider the people on the opposite sides of those questions, they'll see that actually they have much more in common with their opponents than they do with people who are indifferent. Yeah, that's great advice. Indifference kills in, in a lot of ways. 
but being on the opposite end of a topic can really cause friendship to flourish in various ways. That's, that's great. Well, you, um, you speak of minority culture within science and philosophy. What does it mean to be working within a minority culture? Well, I saw this both as an undergraduate at Pitt in the philosophy of science program and, and a graduate student later on. And the way I have understood my minority position as a theist and an intelligent design proponent has to do with truth versus majority status. It's wonderfully healthy to realize, intellectually healthy, to realize that truth is not determined statistically. Now, of course, there have been times in the history of science when the theistic worldview was dominant. I think, for instance, uh, in the early scientific revolution with Kepler, Newton, Boyle, Galileo, and so forth, all of them theists, many of them very outspokenly theistic. Or let's say in England in the first few decades of the 19th century when Darwin was a young man, Darwin had to pass an exam at Cambridge to graduate on Paley's writings, right? Paley's evidences for Christianity. I think uh, Darwin said that reading William Paley's natural theology was the only good thing he got out of his time at Cambridge. We don't live in that world anymore. Surveys of the National Academy of Sciences or other groups of prominent scientists typically show a majority of atheists and agnostics. So a theistic advocate of design finds himself or herself very much in a, in a minority position to the degree, in fact, that we know at the Discovery Institute that theistic science students who wish to attend our summer seminar often have to be very careful about whom they tell that they're going, right? Because it could be very costly to their careers if someone found out that they were coming to Seattle in July. So that, you know, that's, that is a minority position. But actually, I, I think it's, it is salutary for someone in a minority position to be in that role, even though it is much more difficult to build a career because the majority position may be that position, may hold the majority for reasons that have nothing to do with truth. Someone may hold that view for career-related reasons, right? Because it's the best path to having a happy career, and yet, you know, they've jumped on a particular scientific bandwagon because that's what's going to get them a job, or that's what's going to get them prestige. So when you bear in mind that truth is never determined statistically. It sets you free to, to be in a minority culture, such as intelligent design currently is, and yet flourish both internally and among your, your design colleagues and have reasonable expectations about what will happen when you go to interact with the majority. So that's what I try to tell students is don't take your minority status is anything other than a fact about a census. It has nothing to do with truth. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. Well, in your piece, you use the phrase two sets of toys. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Let me give you, uh, I'll come back to the toys in a moment, but let me give you a homespun analogy, which I think helps convey what I meant by that. And uh, the analogy is not to toys in a playroom, but rather to criminal detection. So imagine 
Well, think about it this way. There are four ways for a human being to die. You can get sick. You can have an accident, like slipping and falling off a cliff. You can kill yourself, which is a grim topic, but it happens, right? Or someone can kill you by a deliberate action. So illness, accident, suicide, and homicide pretty much exhaust the ways there are for a human being to die. Now, let's imagine two worlds in which one could be a detective. In world A, you have the job of being a police detective, but you are only allowed to explain events by illness or accident. So you are called to a scene of the death, and there's some poor hapless guy lying on his living room floor, and he has a bullet hole in his back, right? And he's room temperature, right? Stone cold dead. It's a kind of a grisly scene to imagine. And, you know, you photograph the scene and you ask questions, but what you have in your explanatory toolkit are illness and accident. Now, it's, it's very difficult to come up with a scenario under which an illness will put a bullet hole in your back or an accident, although that's possibly somewhat more plausible. Okay, that's world A. You're restricted just to illness and accident, no matter what the evidence. In world B, you've got illness and accident. They happen. Actually, most people die from illness, many fewer from accident and even fewer from suicide or homicide. But you have four options instead of two. Now, in world B, your life as a detective is going to be much happier because you have a greater range of explanatory options. In fact, really, the full imaginable range of explanatory options. So in a scenario like that, we can say that illness and accident represent the so-called natural causes of human death, whereas suicide and homicide are deliberate. You have to take a deliberate series of actions to kill yourself or to kill someone else. So we could say that, that suicide and homicide are, if, it, if you were the intelligently caused forms of death. And in world B, allowing for the possibility of suicide and homicide doesn't rule out illness and accident at all, right? They are additional causal factors that you can consider. So when I say two sets of toys, often at the summer seminar, students will come in who are, let's say, a graduate student in evolutionary biology or a graduate student in genetics. They know They've been educated in the natural causes, the mechanisms of evolutionary transformation, mutation uh, selection, and so forth. What they get at the seminar is a whole new set of toys. Concepts like foresight or top-down causation or circular causality, right? All these very provocative and interesting notions that they would never hear in a seminar room back at their home university And we don't take anything away from them, right? They can bring all the toys that they brought from their graduate education to the seminar, and we give them a whole new set, and then they can play with both. So again, there is a certain advantage when you've got a minority position, like intelligent design, that you can use all the good toys that come from the mainstream, from the majority, plus you're not restricted to that corner of the playroom. You can go and get your toys, And my hope is that with time, we can make the intelligent design toys sufficiently attractive that we can draw people from the other side of the playroom. That's a great analogy. 
Well, what are the dangers of defining oneself in opposition to the mainstream position? Well, let me go back to majority versus minority stances, right? There's all the difference in the world between the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of polemical advantage. We see this all the time in politics, right? I saw it actually 35 years ago as a young person, first year graduate student, I worked as a legal assistant to Wendell Byrd, the attorney who represented the state of Louisiana in the U.S. Supreme Court, the so-called balanced treatment case that went before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1985. And I would pay the bills by, you know, helping Wendell Byrd with his legal research as he put his brief together for the Supreme Court. And one of the things that we noticed together was the definitions of science that were being offered by the ACLU on the other side of the, of the legal controversy were terrible. They were, they were out of date, inadequate, insufficient definitions of science. And I remember discussing this with, with Bird as we're, you know, we're working on the brief. And he said, Paul, you need to realize the ACLU is not interested in the truth. They're interested in winning. They're interested in, in persuading a majority of the justices on the Supreme Court to vote to hold this, this Louisiana balanced treatment law unconstitutional. In a situation like that, what you want to do is persuade, it's, a, it's, in a, it's an illegal polemical controversy, right? And the truth may actually work against you. So leading philosophers of science at the time who had no interest in intelligent design or creationism or anything, such as Larry Loudon, would say these definitions of science that supposedly demarcate science from pseudoscience or non-science are wretched. They're awful. They would never survive for five minutes in a philosophy colloquium, yet there they are in legal briefs. And they're there because the ACLU wanted to win. And they did win, right? Seven to two is how the decision came down. Well, what that and many other such experiences taught me is there's every difference in the world between going after the truth, whatever the cost, come what may, versus keeping an eye on, you know, to, to mix metaphors, unfortunately, uh, let's take a sports metaphor, to keeping an eye on the scoreboard. And really what you care to do is make sure you have a better score, a bigger score at the end of the game than your opponent. And the danger of that for someone like an intelligent design thinker is they can mix up what it takes to win versus what should be the truth. And you can come to believe what you tell people when you are saying it for a short-term gain, because you're, you care about winning a legal case, let's say, when what you're saying is not actually the truth. And you can also come to think that what makes something valuable is how much it's connected to winning a cultural battle rather than what matters in the long run, which is pursuing, pursuing the truth. So I have seen this on both sides because I studied evolutionary theory and I noticed that many evolutionary theorists built theology into the arguments that they made about the truth of evolution, not because they actually believed it, but because they wanted to refute creationism, which makes evolutionary theory in a strange way the most theologically entangled science in 2020. So I tell students, 
remember what you should be pursuing is what you think is true, whatever your opponent happens to believe. And don't define your position with respect to what your opponent believes. Imagine that your opponent is already persuaded that you are right. Would your position change? If it would, you th need to think seriously about what you're saying because polemics, that is, you know, winning cultural arguments and truth may have nothing to do with each other. So that's the, that's the danger. Fascinating advice for us as well as your students. Well, that about does it for this episode, Paul, but we will be back with a couple more in this series as you look further into the way that design theorists can work best in a naturalistic culture. So thanks for your time today, and we'll, we'll, we'll connect with you soon. Anytime. I always love being on the program. You can read more of Paul's work at evolutionnews.org. Just go to the Writers tab and click on Paul's picture. And if you're enjoying the content on ID the Future, consider posting a positive rating and review to help new listeners find the program. As always, listen to more episodes at idthefuture.com or on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, for ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.